Hello and welcome to All in the Addicted Gamblers podcast. My name is Brian and I have not placed a bet since July of 2014. And I'm excited for today's episode because we're going to talk about something we don't generally talk about too much on this podcast, but we need to talk about more and that is diversity. And so today we have a gambling consultant who specializes with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And her name is Miss Neva Pryor. Neva, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I feel honored that you asked me. Well, Neva, would you give everybody what your background is and how you came to be in the position you are? Okay. I started out in um, in the for-profit world. And then, you know, as life changes and, and God changes your path, I found, it, found myself in, in the nonprofit world. I was working for an organization in Philadelphia that I was basically doing marketing for them, but then there were other things that we we could do. For instance, they had a trauma workshop and uh, they needed people to help monitor it. So I was trained as a trauma recovery and empowerment model um, specialist. So I did that. And the, the woman that was running it said, you know, you're a natural at this. You need to, why don't you go back to school and get your master's degree? Well, at the time I was 50, you know, that seems so... <laughs> So I was 50 at the time. And I said, well, you know, I don't want to take on that. It's going to be expensive and all this other stuff. No, no, no. Why don't you try it? Well, I went back and I got my uh, master's degree in clinical and counseling psychology with a emphasis on trauma. So, you know, on my diploma, it has the trauma on there. Plus, I'm a TREM counselor too, trauma recovery empowerment model counselor. So I did that. And then I worked in the areas of homelessness, uh, co-occurring disorders, where um, I was working in the field with individuals who had mental health disorders and also well, co-occurring and also substance use disorders. That was a um, definitely a different experience. After that, someone um, told me about an initiative in Philadelphia, where I'm from, on gambling. And, you know, at the time I said, wow, you know, we don't, it, we weren't taught it in school. So it was, you know, wow, I, I didn't know that that was really a thing. So I went and I, um, I applied for the job and I got the job. And basically my supervisor said, here's the grant, make it live. That was, first of all, I didn't know anything about city government. I didn't really know anything, but I guess she felt that I could do it. So I did. And basically what we did, prevention, intervention, and treatment, setting up models to help people in the community. Uh, I think one of the most surprising one that we did was amongst the homeless. Most people probably say, well, they don't have the money to gamble. Why would they be gambling? You'd be surprised that we found that there was a large amount of individuals who had a gambling disorder. And I used to see a guy that would be panhandling, you know, asking for change. And then I'd see him at the window getting uh, scratch offs. Mm -hmm. So it, it, you know, one thing you have to think about with any kind of addiction, any kind of mental illness is that it crosses all people. There's no, there's no person that can say, well, you know, there's no gambling going on in, in our culture or our background. So my dear friend, who's now deceased, Jim Pappas, he was kind of like a mentor for me, teaching me about, he was the um, executive director of the council in Pennsylvania. And he basically taught me a lot about gambling from firsthand experience. He gave me uh, an award one year 
for clinician or um, I think it was a person of the year for gambling. And then um, then he told me about a position in New Jersey about being the executive director there. I applied and was hired. And that's where I really found out about gambling, having the 800 gambler number there and being able to actually hear what people were going through and understand the um, urgency and the, oh, my God, I need help. And, uh, you know, so being able to talk to them was really an experience. And then also learning about New Jersey and um, as far as culture is concerned. One of the things that I came, I, I knew that had to be done was to make sure that everybody had an opportunity to get uh, support, treatment, and hope, not just uh, the mainstream, not just Caucasians, but that also African-Americans, Hispanics, uh, Asians. And I, I really feel successful in the fact that I was able to reach individuals. For instance, a lot of people in communities they don't leave the community. They stay there. That's why they have the corner stores and things like that, because people aren't leaving the neighborhoods. So what I did was put up many posters in um, in those areas so that people knew where to go for help. And we also put uh, posters and signs up. I did some um, training with the Asian community, and we were able to hire an Asian American to do um, uh, treatment. And also with the Hispanic community, Um, I had a wonderful former employee who actually did posters of cockfighting, you know, telling people where to go for help if they had a problem. See, that's what you have to do. You got to find out if, you know, I may not know where to go, but I have people around me who know where to go. So I felt like I was very successful in that. And And then later on, when the George Floyd incident happened, the National Council wanted to start a group on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And basically, the target was to make sure that all councils understood diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how they could also target individuals. So I was very happy to head up that, that committee and work with um, one of my favorite colleagues, Dr. Haskins in uh, Maryland. So, you know, that's basically my background in a nutshell. I'm pretty much semi-retired right now, and I'm working in collaboration and um, just trying to figure out what I want to do next. <laughs> that sounds nice. And you're, you're doing it from a bright, shiny, sunny place. So Yes, I'm in uh, Arizona and it's um, 70 degrees and it really helps my mood. And it's, it's just been awesome being here. Thank you for mentioning Dr. Haskins because she's coming up on the podcast uh, in a few days. She's going to join. So I'm excited for that. Well, let's start our conversation. Would you define diversity, equity, and inclusion for the audience so everybody knows what we're talking about? Sure. Diversity has to do with making sure that there are several, like say if I was going to have a team, I want to make sure that I have a diverse team so I can hit all nationalities, all culturals, all cultures. Um, and even, you know, like we don't think about females, we don't think about seniors, we don't think about children. So that's what diversity is about. Now, you can have diversity, but you don't necessarily have equity and inclusion. Uh, We live in a diverse country, but 
equity is not, um, it's, you know, things are not uh, equal in many regard um, to some of the communities I spoke to you about when it comes to race, um, especially with COVID. Uh, there's a, uh, you know, as, as far as I think it's the indigenous peoples and um, African-Americans have the highest rate of death with, um, with the COVID-19 um, epidemic. And that's one way individuals can make sure that they are um, making the, the uh, vaccination and testing equal for everybody. And then you have inclusion. Do I feel a part of? And that's why when I did the, um, when I would do posters and things like that, I wanted people to realize that, yeah, you can do it too. You know, you can, you can get help. It's not just for some people, but it's for all people. And so diverse, you have a group of people from diverse backgrounds, equity, things need to be equal. When, when I go on the stand, I should get equal uh, judgment or treatment than that you would. And then inclusion, I want to feel a part of. And that's very difficult when you're a minority to feel a part of. Speaking about identification, should can you talk about what you identify as and why identification is important? I identify as African-American, although as most African-Americans, we are all from a diverse background because of slavery and things like that. My grandfather was Cuban, although we weren't raised in the culture. It's part of my part of my my life, Native American, Cherokee tribe, and then a lot of European. I have a lot of European um, blood in me as well. I did the, you know, 23andMe and all those. And pretty much it came up what I thought. Um, even I had a little Scandinavian in me. <laughs> so, um, you know, that was interesting, but it's good to know where did I come from? Because as African-Americans, you know, basically we were um, we were stolen from uh, Africa and brought here. And we weren't given an opportunity to say, well, yeah, I want to come or I don't want to come. And so it, it just, it's it's very difficult, um, like I said before, to, to be in systems and not feel included or to feel equal. Generally, when I get guests for the podcasts, they tend to look like me, right? I'm a white guy in America. Um, and I don't know, I only take what people respond with when people send me an email and say, oh, I'd like to come on the program and talk about my gambling story. Now, from time to time, I do get diverse uh, people to come on, but it is overwhelmingly white people mm -hmm. that come on to talk about their story. So if I were to just take my gambling podcast and say, oh, it's just white people gambling, but that's not true. So how does somebody like myself reach those other audiences? You know, I just want to get the information out so people can find help. In order to do that, um, I need people to come on from diverse backgrounds to talk about it. How would somebody like myself go about finding people to come on and talk? Well, the good thing is, is that you recognize we're afraid to have conversations. And, you know, if, when when I was working you know, you could say, but so much, but you couldn't really um, target the, some of the things that you wanted to target. For instance, as you said, you, you identify as a white guy. So you're, you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm a part of an entitled group and entitled, you know, a lot of people think entitled means, oh, that you were, 
you were born rich or, you know, or you had it all. No, it means when people look at you, you're immediately included where when they look at me, it, it's not so, it's not that way, you know? So person like myself or, um, or other members of um, minority communities have to fight a little, you know, my parents used to say, you have to, you have to be stronger. You have to fight harder. You have to be more educated than your white counterpart because you have to be able to stand out. So that's what, um, you know, that's one of the things that I've been striving for is to make people be able to, to, to confront it. You know, if, if you say, I don't know anything about African-Americans, Neva, all I know is from, you know, my own experiences. And then I can, I can educate you. Why are we the way we are? Why are Native Americans the way that they are? What has happened? You know, when I was learning about trauma, the question is not what did you do or what, you know, what happened to you? You know, what what brought on all this trauma? And trauma is like a has all these tentacles or what what you want to call roots. And then what you see on the surface might be substance use disorder, gambling, promiscuity, those kind of things. Those are the um, symptoms of the disease that's within me from the trauma. So, um, you know, when you tell, like I used to have somebody that worked with me that said, I don't see color. Well, that's one of the main, that's, that's racist. How could you not see my color? That means I'm invisible to you. Now you might want to say, I try to treat all people the same. I try to, to treat people equally. And, but we all have our baggage. You know, our parents might have called somebody something or, or, you know, it depends on whatever your orientation is. It takes a while to get rid of that. It takes, and you know, when we talk about the LGBTQIA community, you know, a lot of us might have been raised to, to have certain beliefs, but then we, we educate ourselves. People don't want to educate themselves. They just want to say, okay, well, that person's black, that person's, you know, brown. And especially here where I where I live now, a large a large member of the community are Hispanics. I was with um, my uh, daughter in law's mother, and she's Caucasian. And we went down to um, you know we were looking at stuff, and so the ladies she didn't know that um, you know that her husband is Mexican. So we were we were talking, and the woman goes, uh, you know, where do you live? And she says, Nogales. She said, Oh, aren't you afraid? aren't you afraid of the uh, people coming across the border? And I, you know, my thing is like, they're not coming across the border to kill you. They're coming across the border to get a better, you know, and at that point I said, neighbor, walk away, <laughs> which I did. And so, you know, my friend, my friend, you know, with her being Caucasian, she said, Neva, this is a teachable moment for me so that I could teach her that it's not, that that's not the case, not to be afraid, because there's nothing to be afraid of. But that's what we have to do. We have to educate each other to to understand each other. I guess I'm I'm lucky in that in my 20s and early 30s, I worked a lot of jobs with a lot of different people. And so I got to know a lot of different people. And that is helpful. I'm, I, I mean, I was raised in towns when I was real little, I was raised in towns that were primarily Caucasian. But then as I got older and I went out into the world on my own, I put myself in situations with other people. And 
that was a valuable experience and that I got to know everybody. And in the end, like everybody just wants a good life. We all want to be happy yeah. and, 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 and in many cases, just have a good time. And I had a good time with all these people that I met and worked with. And I still talk to some of them today for people that don't get that, you know, who don't put themselves out there in those situations. They, how do you get to, to people like that in order to educate them about diversity? Well, surprisingly enough, we have a very similar background. I grew up in a white community. I went to elementary school, high school was all white back in the 60s and 70s. So you can imagine what I was called on a daily basis. Um, I remember a little girl invited me over to her house. Her mother made me stay outside. I mean, I could give you a lot of um, experiences that I had with that, which you know, created uh, a lot of esteem problems um, and things like that. So when I got out, I said, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to be with my people. You know, enough of this. I'm going to go be with my people. Well, you know what? I didn't fit in there either <laughs> because my experiences were different. My experiences were different. So what I did was I wanted to know more. And that's all people have to do. They can't be afraid. You know, a lot of times discrimination comes from people being afraid that this group is going to uh, get more than that group. Like a lot of times with, um, you know, with Mexicans coming to the United States, oh, they're going to take our jobs. You're not going to work those jobs. What are you talking about? You know, these jobs, that a lot of the jobs that they're fulfilling are jobs that, you know, people aren't necessarily going to take, but they want to they want to establish themselves in, in the United States. They want a better life for their children. And when people look at it from a human perspective and see that, what would you want for your family? Would, your, would you want your family to live in poverty? Would you want your family to not get a good education? You know, it was this, it's, that's what we need to do is to understand why it is that we feel the way they, that we do. You know, it's just like when, um, when I'm doing therapy, I confront people's flawed thinking in a, you know, therapeutic way. Well, what we need to do is say, well, what, what, do, what experience have you had? You know, maybe like I know some people who, um, I have a friend whose uh, brother was killed by a white man. And um, so that just colored her for the rest of her life. You know, and it wasn't until she went into treatment and she wanted to change the way she thought um, that it that it was possible. But, you know, those are the things that we need to tell. We're not all the same. You know, we're not not everybody is is the same. Everybody, you know, we have commonalities as a group, but some of our experiences are different. So we have to be able to say, you know, like some people, you know, instead of saying, well, where are you from? Oh, how do you identify, you know, um, those kind of things or the way that we, we word things. So like you did in the beginning, Neva, how do you identify? What is your identity? Cause people don't ask that they see me I'm black. That's it. That's all they want to know. They don't know that I have a diverse background. Other African-Americans know that because they are of similar, um, backgrounds as far as you know, when we were brought over as slaves, as you know, the slave master would go down to our quarters and rape our women. And so that's why we look 
so diverse is because of some of those reasons. Um, now it's a little different. Knowing how people were treated, knowing how this country has marginalized um, anybody who's different. I mean, it doesn't matter what you are, anybody who's different, you know, and, and the thing about it is you don't always get the freedom to be able to discuss these things. You know, either you're trapped in a, uh, a system uh, wherever you work as far as not being able to discuss these things or you're afraid. And I think that's what it has been for a lot of us. We were, you know, we were told don't, don't, you know, don't shake the boat up. Don't don't say anything, you know, don't tell on people who are um, being racist. And so now a lot of that is coming to the to the forefront. But if I run into people who, you know, I try to put my biases aside when I see people like the other day, there were a bunch of people on the corner with Trump flags and um, that uh, QAnon and all that stuff. So immediately, you know, I from from trauma. I immediately am on guard. I'm immediately upset. And the better reaction would be, okay, let's calm down. If I was to ever engage in a conversation, I'd want to know, well, what are your motives? Why are you the way you are? What are you afraid of? You know, because a lot of times we do these kind of things out of fear. So it's always good to, you know, when I expose myself, then you feel free to expose yourself and say who you are. See, you're allowed to say, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, my parents were from England or my parents were from France, you know, just like I said, as far as my identity is concerned, but not to just assume that I'm from a certain background. I get the same reaction when I see people on the corner for anything. I'm like, why are you here blocking traffic? I'm just trying to get some food. The only thing I love about a gambling addiction is that it unites everybody from everywhere across all spectrums because we all have a gambling addiction. And whether you are red or blue in this in the States or whether you're from Kenya and are betting on football games there, you know, we all have a gambling addiction and that's what unites us. So how does diversity, equity, and inclusion relate to gambling harm, specifically the people who experience gambling harm? Well, it's already been, you know, it, well, I'll go by the state of New Jersey. 6.2% of the population has a gambling problem. And that was done through Rutgers University. So they already have more than half of an increase in gambling than any other state. You know, that's twice the national average. Of those people, uh, a lot of African-Americans are two times that. So they, they would, whatever group has a gambling problem, 2%, I mean, twice that is what it would be for African-Americans. And it was interesting, Dr. Nauer did a, um, in her uh, report that she did, on prevalence of internet gambling, they said that Hispanics had a higher rate of um, internet gaming. And statistics are good, but if I don't present, how are you going to know that I have a problem? You don't talk about what's going on in the house. That's just not, that's, you know, where you're raised. So you don't trust, you know, that's, that's the biggest thing. You just don't trust. You don't go out there and try to um, better, you know, change your situation. So that's what harms uh, or stops people from getting help. 
And so it's up to us to be able to, you know, those of us that know about gambling, all those of us who know the community need to, to go there and to be able to tell people, yes, you can go for help. People are suffering in this world, really suffering, whether they have a gambling addiction or whatever it is. These times are very hard. And, you know, you look at people and you might say, okay, well, this person has a mental illness. But really, when you get to the root of it all, it's trauma. You know, I had a friend of mine who she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. She was, you know, with depressive disorders. Her main problem was PTSD because it looks like it looks like other illnesses. So when we talk about gambling, what we need to do is take all that into consideration. You know, I don't. A lot of African-Americans now are, um, you know, they're reaching out to gamble to forget about the past, to forget about the pressures, to just like any other community. But I'm also medicating the fact that I'm not I'm not equal. Um, I'm not included. So if this is a way for me to get outside of myself, just like the uh, person who has an alcohol problem, you know, I'm going to drink because I don't feel a part of. I'm going to drink so that I can um, somehow feel a part of. And another interesting thing about uh, African-Americans, probably the largest wealth that many of us have had as far as retirees are concerned. Um, A lot of us, our pensions are huge. And so we get this money and we're saying, oh, you know, I can make it even, even bigger and I can go down there and I can... Uh, make more money. I have a friend who um, her husband died, left her very well off. And she thinks nothing about going to the casino, maybe twice a week, she might drop a grand. And so, you know, I, 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 when there's an in for me to say something, I'll say something. Like I might say, wow, just think if you had that money, if you didn't gamble that money, what you would have, you know, and she says, yeah, I know I, I could do a lot for my uh, grandchildren. When you're presented with a large amount of money and you you feel like, okay, I got it. And then you start to do things that, quote unquote, the white man would do, you know, gambling, you know, culturally, as far as um, uh, traveling and things like that. And you have to also remember that we've been gambling for years, running numbers. That was a big, a big thing in the African-American community, running numbers. So most of the things that we're, that African-Americans are doing are scratch-offs and, um, you know, playing the lottery. And some would go to the casinos. But now, because of the advent of internet gaming and sports betting, now, if you get a phone, you're going to start to do that. So we want to target people and educate them on that. That is the one shameful experience about sports betting is that if if it makes it so then you stay away from sports because you are a sports better and you're in recovery and you don't want to see sports anymore. Sports is one of those places where people from all backgrounds can come together and celebrate. That's the shame about sports, people who are affected by sports betting who can't watch sports anymore. Well, the other thing about sports betting is I like and I don't like sports. Like I'm not just going to turn on a sports you know, like basketball or football, but if somebody else is doing it and it's a group event, I do it. So most of the people, when they start out with watching sports and things like that, it's a group event. Now it's become solitary 
you're not out there being with people. And that, that way you can spend as much money as you want. You know, I remember when I was in Pennsylvania on the gambling initiative and they were talking about how you could be at the um, around the pool in Atlantic City and place a bet. And I'm saying to myself, oh, my gosh, you know, that's that's really something else. You know, little did I know that I would be testifying against uh, sports betting. Think about it is to for me to say, well, don't don't approve it, but give at least give the money that that is needed to help people. What they give is crumbs off their plate, you know, and, you know, again, when you're working with different um, casinos and things like that, you, you know, you don't really say a lot because that's, you know, where some at least the the money that you do get is coming from them. So you try to make it, oh, you know, as far as responsible gaming, you know, that word will be used. I yeah, don't know. They what don't to even say, say about responsible that. gambling. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's not it's made to entice. The gambling community is enticing you. And whatever they'll do, they'll, they're counteracting the advertisement. I could I can't even I couldn't even compete with their budgets for advertising. Mine were like, "Okay, well can I squeeze out a a a billboard or can I squeeze out this?" And that so that's why I wanted to have videos and I wanted to have um things like that so that they were inexpensive and we could optimize our, you know, at the time, optimize our our presence in in, in the internet. Neva, what do you think is going to happen with the current landscape of of gambling? The, you know, the DraftKings, the FanDuels of the world, all the online gambling that's coming now, all the iGaming. How do you think that is going to affect society? What do you think is going to happen? Well, it's definitely going to affect society. I remember when I was um working in um, New Jersey. And we already knew that the, in 2013 that the internet gaming had been approved by the state. Like I said before, I was taken aback, like, wow, that's really, let's like putting crack in a crack in a pipe and saying, you know, have a great time. So, you know, with, with it being in your pocket, see, I could be, gam- as you know, I could be gambling while we're talking right now. Any so anybody can be doing it in at any time. But what I found out was that, you know, in, in 2018, they approved the uh uh fantasy sports. Okay, DraftKings and FanDuel. I testified when they were trying to say that it wasn't gambling. And that's how it got through because they called it a game, they said it was, you know, that the person had expertise and things like that. Skill that it was game, right. It's a skill game, right? And I, so I testified that it is gambling. So I watched, I think I was there for a couple of days, testified, you know, FanDuel and um, uh, fantasy sport, all the fantasy sports, you know, they were in there. And a lot of these things are predetermined, you know, it's what the outcome's going to be. So I said in my mind, that is their end to sports betting. I said that in my mind, you know, sure enough. Sports betting was, um, you know, approved by Governor Murphy. And I remember testifying for that because I wanted the good, you know, I wanted to make sure that, okay, we understand you have this thing going on. We understand that. But you're going to have to pay for the amount of problem gamblers that are going to result from this. And 
That's what I testified for. You know, you have to know what you want out of the outcome when, you, when you're when you in a situation that you know that you can't control. Well, maybe I can get a piece of this. And it is a piece. It's astounding. I don't know, you know, because I don't do, I don't work in the tobacco industry, but, you know, you see commercials all the time and, and things that they have to do to protect the, the smoker. Um, same thing with alcohol, but you don't see nearly as much um, when it comes to gambling. Now, one of the things that what we have to do, especially when it comes with the gambling is concerned, it has to be done on a national basis. Yes, states can have different things. You know, the state of Arizona could have this thing or the state of North Carolina could have this, but it needs to be it needs to be done on a national level. Um, for instance, a lot of people, when they talk about uh, marijuana, you know, in, in this state, it's um, legalized, but it's not legalized on a, on a, especially the medical marijuana, you know, is not legalized at a national level. So people are having problems being able to use that. So if we could get sports betting and internet gaming, especially somehow done on a national level as far as help is concerned, we could get a lot more money. And I know Keith White is working hard to do that. He's right there in DC. So I'm hoping that sooner or later that it will be on a national level that this is the amount of money that um, casinos have have to pay to be able to help people. What do you but I think it's, a, I just think it's, you know, you're really setting people up, up with, once you give, once you, you know, you got the phone, you know, once, once you have this phone, you can do anything. Yeah. I mean, personally, I think it'll be an epidemic of harm. I, oh, I, yes. I just, it's just so much access without too many rules associated with it. Um, and the advertising right now is the Wild West. Why do you think the federal government has ignored gambling? I don't think people take gambling seriously. I mean, that's the whole substances thing. Substances and alcohol. Yes. Plenty of money for research and programs, but not yes. for gambling. Yes. They're like what people, it, you know, you have to be educated again. Uh, the way I came to understand gambling was I looked at it as, as a substance, as I would substance use. You have very classic symptoms that are very, are very similar to substance use disorders. So you've got to look at it that way. Um, not just think that they're just bad people who can't stop gambling. You know, I think a lot of us in the beginning say, well, why don't they just stop? You know, and people say that you to say that about people with an alcohol problem or, or cocaine addiction. Why don't they just stop? Well, there's a bigger component to it. But I, I, I'm very, um, I just worry about this country in general, but, you know, it's like, well, whatever, what's going to be legalized next? That's I I said that some of the other day. I was like, well, then just legalize heroin and cocaine and let's get exactly. it over Exactly. Exactly. If there's no I rules, mean, then let there be no rules. But if we're going right. to have some and some, then we need to take care of gambling as well. Yeah, I know in some cities, large cities, they have, oh, I don't know whether they have, uh, but I know in Canada, they have what's called safe houses where you can go and you, I think that's what they're called. And you can go and a nurse will shoot you up with heroin to make sure that you don't OD so that you keep, you know, why not look at society as a whole? Why are people using heroin? Why are people using uh, gambling as a, as a means to escape? You know, that's what we need to be uh, centering on, not feeding the problem, 
preventing the problem and then intervening when necessary. I think mine turned out to be uh, undiagnosed depression and anxiety, which I finally found out about. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was during my stay. I was inpatient back in September and Mm -hmm. for two weeks. And I was in the city of Hartford. And that was eye opening because I was in there with people from all backgrounds and to see what mental health problems were occurring with people from every background, you know, rich and poor, middle class, black, white, you know, whatever the background may be, they were in the same place as me. And that's what it came down to. I was like, we're all here at our lowest point together. And I really connected Mm -hmm. with those people because we were at our lowest point together. Mm -hmm. because we were um, there asking for help, which, you know, and the other thing is, you know, you talk about gambling. Well, how much money is going into mental illness? How about children who are being traumatized every day when they go to school? You know, talk about not inclusive. I mean, you go to an inner city um, school and they're not being, you know, they're because the teacher has to deal with so much trauma that's coming from home. And then you mix it all together. Like I said before, there needs to be on a national level mental health services. You know, a lot of us in the industry, you know, we go into this and it's like crumbs. Like I said, just like with um, gambling, you know, you get the crumbs instead of we need to put more money into mental health and take it seriously. Where do you think you could get that money? I guess you'd have to take money from somewhere. So where do you where could you find money? to give to mental health? Because I agree with you. I mean, there should be a number that you can call other than the suicide prevention line to get mental health help and have them come and get you. And, you know, I should have been able to call a number other than go, I had to go to the police station for mine because I was suicidal. So I went to the police station. I shouldn't have to go to the police for that, although they were wonderful when I interacted with them as far as my mental health was concerned. Thank God. Um, Because I took a I took a shotgun to the police station. I didn't walk in with it. I left it in my car, but I showed up and I said, I have a shotgun in my car. I'd like you to take it from me because that's where I was at with, with my mental health. And they were very nice. But so where do you get the money for mental health? Well, I mean, you look at where, where money is being thrown around. Like for instance, I know um, I won't say the city, but they, um, there was a city that I was near <laughs> and they, um, you know, like everybody was being chauffeured around, you know, why are you being, sho- why do you need to be chauffeured around? You know, why can't you drive your own car? Um, why is it that these salaries are just unbelievable for certain things where salaries for mental health services are not being channeled into the people who need it? Mental health is 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 the same thing as you know what you were talking about as far as gambling. Why isn't it being taken seriously? Look at all the suicides. Have you noticed all the suicides that are happening, especially amongst young people? Here in the last um, six months, it's it's unbelievable. And gambling because addiction has the highest rate of suicidality. Yes, correct among addiction. One in five. One in five, and that's why it's so important that we get to the gambler because the gambler needs to know that there's a way out because they think, first of all, they've hidden it for so many years and so many, so over such a large number of months or years, whatever. And then, you know, they've destroyed the family and so many different things happen there. That's the only way out, you know, so they'll, they'll drive their cars into a wall. Oh, that looks like suicide. 
I mean, that looks like a, a hit and run accident or what, or, or, you know, no, it was suicide. He meant to do that, you know, but we don't, we're not looking at it from that perspective. So it's not always reported to me. I would take away all, if, if it was me. Yeah. You're sports. in charge. All right. I'm in, all right. Money from sports ought to go into mental health money, frivolous money in this world. I think, you know, I don't want to get on my soapbox and say, but you know, the haves have. And yeah, I mean, I was very lucky. I had insurance that covered my stay for two weeks and I saw that bill, that insurance bill. And I went, Oh my gosh, could you imagine if, if you don't have insurance? I mean, now what would have happened if you came in there with a shotgun and you were of a minority background? Oh yeah. (laughs) That occurred to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad I thought about it beforehand and didn't walk in with it. But yeah, I I completely see what you're talking about. It's the same thing with therapy. I mean, you know, they have community mental health centers, but what happens is a lot of times there's a lot of turnover. It's it's not a place, you know, it's it's very difficult to work in in those places for um, professionals, or they don't take my insurance. Like Medicare, you know, I figured, oh, well, I'm on easy street with Medicare, you know, but you have to buy that gap insurance and you got to buy this. And then a lot of people can't afford um, the best health care, which we talk about. um, I think Dr. Haskins will talk about, you know, the COVID disparities and how people are, you know, you have to go down to the communities. You have to, you know, and that's the only way you're going to get it is to be able to put money into programs that can go into the community because that's the only way you're going to, you can't just, I'm not suggesting throwing money at a problem, but I'm talking about, you know, I I consider myself very good with setting up programs. Um, I'm an innovative thinker. So I like to do things. I like to um, put things together like that. To me, it's challenging and it's rewarding seeing it come into fruition those are the kind of things we need to strategize on how we're going to serve people instead of just, well, so what? They're a gambler. Okay, so you are coming from New Jersey. Is Atlantic City um, the best running city in the world? Are the streets paved in gold? Does everybody have mental health coverage and insurance coverage? And there's no crime. And I assume that's what Atlantic City is like because they've had gambling for a long time. and the revenue is what I'm always told is the positive, right? Well, it brings in so much money. Are they putting any of that money back into the city? God, I can't even, t- I don't even, I, I know I was in my twenties when, uh, well, you know, when I was a kid, that was the place to go. You went to Atlantic city, you went to Wildwood. That was your vacation spot. Um, especially Atlantic city. Cause they had such a great boardwalk. I remember when they approved gambling in New Jersey in Atlantic city. And I said to myself, you know, a, a lot of us said it. It's going to destroy the the city. There were supposed to be things in place to make sure that the Atlantic City got those revenues pumped back into the community from the um, from the casinos. Well, that hasn't happened in in Atlantic City. You better not go too far off of the boardwalk because you have a lot of drug addiction, you have a lot of um, prostitution, you have a lot of crime, because a lot of people are suffering from gambling addictions. A lot of people have reached out, you know, for drugs or whatever, because the economics have been 
you know, the, the money that's in the community has been taken away. You look at any, I, I, I'm originally, from, I was born in Chester, Pennsylvania. And if you say Chester right now, people are like, oh my God, that's a terrible place. Well, when I worked, when I lived in Chester, it was like Main Street, USA. There was industry there for people to work. There was three or four different industries there. What happened? Slowly but surely, those industries pulled out. Where are the people going to work? What are the you've you've now taken away a way for people to make money to have, like you said, an everyday life. You know, I just want to have our everyday life. So you've taken that away, and you just can't do that to people. You've got to put something else in place. Where are they supposed to work? And it's the same thing in Atlantic City. The taxes are high. The property taxes are unbelievable. And it's it's just not the town that it used to be. Yeah, I, they put in casinos in Detroit in I think 2000, 99, 2000. And that was supposed to revitalize the city. Mm-hmm. Well, look at where they're putting it. It's just like in Philadelphia. Where'd they put Sugar House and Fishtown? One of the poorest communities in Philadelphia. Uh, who do you think they're attracting? People like me who are gambling their paycheck every week. Well, and poor, but a lot of people who are. I was I was poor definitely when I was gambling, but okay. I, had, I had a job. I had a job, but I, I was, you know, I was paycheck to paycheck and I was gambling those paychecks. But I time. was watching a video. Um, in fact, Dr. Haskins had been on that video and it's a 15 minute ride. The guy said it's a 15 minute ride for me to go to Sugar House as opposed to going to uh, Atlantic City which would be like an hour or so. I got to pay tolls and everything else. So I'm just going to go right to Sugar House. And and then in addition to that, people are going there on their lunch hour. People in the community, you're right there in the community where people are going to gamble. Yeah. I The saddest sight I saw in the casino I went to in Detroit were people back when there was still change going in the machine, were people looking for money or even even with the receipts that come out now, people just looking for a receipt and, you know, they'd find one for 10 cents or something and mm-hmm. stick it back in and try. It's just leaving children out in the car while they would go in and um, play, uh, you know, the slots. Well, those or news whatever. stories are so sad. They are. But so is, so is the fact that I remember when COVID first hit and there was a commercial, can't remember who, whose commercial it was, but um they said, oh, my father can't go to the casino, so I'm teaching him how to gamble in his pajamas. Oh, my God. Yes. I didn't see that commercial. Well, I, I don't know whether it's still playing or not, but that's, you know, sure, I'm going to teach my father how to uh, gamble. <laughs> well, you guys have been dealing with online gambling in New Jersey for a longer, correct? I mean, that like yeah. 2012 or something? 2013. 2013. Online gambling was approved. So, um, yeah, it's been a long time. And, and I think I was just gonna say, I think what people forget with all this hoopla about sports betting, sports betting, along with sports get betting came online casinos. And that to me is more insidious. The online casinos, I think, prevent, create more harm than the sports betting, although sports betting does its own harm, but online casinos. Well, and then you can also buy, um, you know, now you don't even have to leave the house to buy lottery tickets. Yeah. You can buy them and, you know, trying to get money out of that. You know, I mean, those are the kinds of thing I, I had to deal with as, uh, when I was executive director, trying to get the money from um, some of these entities. How hard was it to get money from them? I mean, were there, did you have wins, you know, for the council where you can hang your head up high? and? Yeah, there were 
Oprah wins, I got a, we got a, well, believe it or not, we would get money from people when they passed away, it would be put in their will. Um, and then um, basically just writing grants. Um, we had gotten a, a grant to um, do treatment. And when we started off, we had about five or six treatment providers. And I think when I left, oh gosh, don't quote me, but I think it was close to 30 or 40, which is is very good to have that many treatment providers in a span of, I think, two, two years. And the most, you know, the fact that I got that many or we, we got that many was um, significant, but the fact that they were diverse was the most thing that I was proud of. You know, there's an Asian American woman who does treatment and that's, that's huge. Uh, people who are Spanish speaking, African-Americans, senior women. It's, uh, it was amazing to me. And I was, I was very proud about that. That's good. Sounds like a nice note to go out on. Mm -hmm. It's been lovely to speak with you, Miss Neva Pryor. Thank you so much for your Thank time. You. And, um, you know, there's help out there for people. Don't feel just because you're of a certain hue or background or, you know, we all deserve to have support, treatment, and hope. Um, no matter what you're dealing with, there's some, some place to be able to go and just keep looking. And for those of us that are, have worked in this area or people who are in recovery, reach out to others because that's what it's all about. And thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, Brian. This podcast is owned by Lee Street Media, LLC. Music provided by T-Vance. Remember, this is a podcast. The views expressed on the podcast are solely those of the hosts and the guests. If you need help for a gambling addiction, please seek professional help.